0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today.
0: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, French President Emmanuel Macron wishes to take part in the BRICS summit in August. How does that reflect France's broader foreign policy objectives? What do ASEAN members hope to achieve through their first joint military exercise in the South China Sea? China will facilitate over 3,000 firms to build 5G factories, how to implement such a large-scale plan. And Australia gives Twitter 28 days to sort out toxicity and hate. What role should governments play in regulating social media platforms? First on today's show, French President Emmanuel Macron wishes to take part in the BRICS summit in South Africa in August. French Foreign Affairs Minister Catherine Colonna said she had informed Pretoria of President Macron's availability and interest during her visit to South Africa. The minister added, the decision to invite Macron must be taken not by fronts, but by the BRICS and first and foremost by South Africa, which is the host of the summit. For more, we are now joined on the line by doctor Lee Li-Pei Mei, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. What do you think
0: is behind French President Emmanuel Macron's interest in participating in the BRICS summit? And how does that align with uh, France's broader foreign policy
2: objectives? Uh, personally, I think this is a very interesting development as it was an unusual request. Uh, If you look at BRICS, uh, BRICS is actually a block meant for the global south, and the current members actually comprise emerging economies. So a developed and advanced economy such as France, wanting to participate in the BRICS summit does send an unusual signal to the world. Uh, For me, it basically means that BRICS is becoming an important platform for France to actually connect and engage with the global South. So in a way, it does say that the status of the global South is very important in the current geopolitical uh, situation. And for France, uh, being able to participate in the BRICS implies that France wants to expand their engagement beyond the US-led institution and pursue their own independent foreign policy. And if you look at uh, France and United States relationship, I think France was very uncomfortable uh, being told what to do by the United States. Mm. Uh, Historically, uh, if you look at uh, France, they had they have always been a loud critic of American policy, such as in the Vietnam War. They also protest. Um, they also critique about Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. So I, I I do think that since Macron is a globalist and wants France to be a major player in the international arena, uh, they seek to expand its sphere of influence. Therefore, being able to involve in BRICS, um, being able to attend BRICS summit does serve uh, France's broader foreign policy goal.
0: Then, in your opinion, what are the chances or considerations for the BRICS group in extending an invitation to Macron to participate in the upcoming summit?
2: Well, in the past, uh, BRICS did extend invitations to non-members, such as to South Africa, before it was a member, uh, Egypt, Turkey, and many more countries. However, These countries, they are also part of the global south, which is very different from France's position today. So uh, based on uh, BRICS' usual practice, um, decisions are usually coordinated between countries, including who to invite to the summit. So we know that South Africa is the host uh, for this year's summit. But in the past, um, um, there was a summit where Pakistan was interested to join uh, but its interest was blocked by one of the BRICS member countries, which is not a host. So as such, the host actually honored uh, the, uh, the block by one of the members. And as a result of that, Pakistan was not invited to the submit. So whether or not President Macron will receive an invitation, I think depends not only on the host, but also on the decision of, on, of all member countries.
0: Mm-hmm. And in what ways could Macron's participation at the BRICS summit contribute to fostering dialogue and cooperation between Western industrialized countries and emerging economies? Like what potential areas of collaboration could Macron explore with the BRICS nations?
2: Um, I think it's a bit difficult um, to have like forced uh, co- dialogue and cooperation between Western industrialized countries and emerging economies. Uh, because there is growing skepticism about Western hegemony. So, therefore, one of the main issues that, you know, Macron may need to address at the BRICS summit if he was ever invited was to treat uh, Global South as an equal partner. Because without this recognition, I don't think there will be any meaningful dialogue and cooperation between Western industrialized countries and emerging economies. Um, especially, you know, if you look at how the West generally targeted China. So based on the treatment of China by the West, I think emerging economies may get the message that Western industrialized countries are trying to undermine the rise of emerging economies. So in terms of future areas of collaboration, uh, I think for BRICS country. They always concerned about sustainable development, how to pursue sustainable development, uh, renewable energy, and also fighting terrorism. So, for example, um, BRICS have established this new development bank, uh, which was meant to sub- finance sustainable projects. And I believe uh, in what way could funds contribute is by being a member of new development bank, and they could contribute to funds these uh, sustainable projects. And also, I think in terms of fighting terrorism, uh, France has a lot to share with BRICS members because fighting terrorism has always been a priority for the EU. And France personally, I think, experienced many terrorist attacks on its territories. So they would have the means and knowledge on how to counter terrorism, particularly on prevention. And I think another potential area uh, of collaboration would be in Pursuing de dollarization. Because as we know, France is not so keen um, to, to have a dollar dominating the world. So, this is also one of the common interests of BRICS. So, in this in this area, uh, there is likely that both uh, France and BRICS could explore ways uh, to pursue de dollarization more efficient, uh, mm-hmm. efficiently.
0: Yeah, but how might Macron's presence at the BRICS summit influence the dynamics and also decision-making process within the group, given that he would be the first Western leader to attend?
2: Um, I think the effect will be minimal, because Mm -hmm. France just expressed its interest to join the summit. And it's not clear now whether it meant that France would want to be a member of the BRICS. It could be just, you know, uh, attending one of the summits and make, you know, convey its message to the global South. So, um, but however, since there are requests from France to attend the BRICS submits, it may allow BRICS members to rethink how, uh, what kind of grouping BRICS wants to be. Um, is that a possibility to make BRICS becoming more inclusive and not only exclusive to the global South? So. I think being inclusive is very helpful for BRICS because it helps not only for the global South, but also for the global North to join. And if you look at uh, in in, in history, I think there was never in the history to see an organization led by the global South and uh, which includes the member of the global North. So if BRICS could be one of the uh, organization that is in, able to accomplish this, I think this would be a breakthrough in history. Mm -hmm.
0: But if Macron were to attend the BRICS summit, will that have an impact on France's strategic partnership with other Western countries, such as those within the G7? Um,
2: First of all, um, as of now, we're not sure whether the invitation Mm -hmm. will be extended to Macron or not, um, given that the decision must come from Um, all the BRICS members because Moscow is already questioning uh, that why do France wants to attend BRICS summit. So for me, I think um, generally, I think the G7 members might be taken aback by Macron's intention to join BRICS summit but i think uh, just by attending the summit would not have a great impact on the strategic partnership between france and other western countries uh, this is because they already have a very long standing partnership with one another and it's too early to arrive um, to the conclude at the conclusion that france's attendance means that it is siding with the emerging ac- countries moreover if you look at brics member india is also part of brics right and I believe G7 members have no issue with that and does not see India as anti-West.
0: Mm-hmm. But you know, Emmanuel Macron made a trip to China earlier this year, right? And he said during his trip to China that um, Europe should not get caught up in crisis that does not belong to it, which prevents it from building its strategic autonomy. And those statements actually draw some criticism within the G7 members. So, I mean, what, what's your take on
2: those comments? Well, I think this is... Uh, Really important for EU to actually pursue strategic autonomy, and and for France, uh, I think President Macron make it clear on several occasions that France and the EU do not necessarily need to be aligned with the United States interests. This is because United States interests may not serve EU interests well, and we we see that uh, when he championed for the strategic autonomy. Um, It's important because it's telling the EU that they need to be a third power to decide and defend their own foreign policy rather than blindly following those of the United States. Um, So in terms of, you know, EU shouldn't be dragged into a crisis that doesn't belong to them. I think this is a, a, a sound message. Uh, sent to the EU members. Uh, This is because if you spend all the resources helping the US to achieve its goal, for example, in containing Taiwan, um, all these resources could actually be used or be better spent on making sure uh, other crises in Europe actually um, can be addressed. So, for example, the crisis in Ukraine and also now I think the European... Uh, domestic difficulties such as disruption in the supply chain and higher energy prices could be better addressed if they could just focus on addressing this um this issue.
0: Yeah, and talk. To- and- to- yeah, and actually talking about the supply chain, Chinese Premier Li Qiang is is also paying a visit to France, and he said he expressed he expressed admiration to the French government's opposition to block confrontations, decoupling, as well as serving industrial and supply chains. I mean, uh, how how do you look at those comments?
2: Well, I think. Oh. oh since this is the first foreign visit by Premier Li, right? So it makes sense why he wanted to actually visit France and Germany because these two leaders, they are more sensible. I think from the perspective of China, uh, they think that there are more space for uh, China to have a positive engagement with France and Germany. Um, So such statements, uh, I think, mean that Premier Li is optimistic that France would not just be a follower of the United States and try to contain China. But instead, uh, France um, uh, actually are interested to engage with China um, and not isolate China. So I think this visit could bring some very meaningful and practical cooperations between both countries, especially in terms of ensuring the resilience of industrial supply chain. Because we know that, Um, The the United States, they are a champion of uh, talking about decoupling and then subsequently de-risking from China. But if we look at following the COVID-19, the global economy actually looks very gloomy. So if countries are actually um, trying to de-risk or reduce dependence from China, uh, not trying uh, trying to reduce the trade with China, uh, it will contribute to a global recession. So I think this visit is important because it can inject more market in confidence and also uh, stimulate economic activities to avoid global recessions. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: thank you, Dr. Li Pei Mei, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the International Islamic University, Malaysia. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Indonesia has announced it will move an upcoming ASEAN military exercise out of disputed waters in the South China Sea. The non combat drills will be held in September and will be the first to be held by. Southeast Asian bloc. Indonesia is the rotating chair of ASEAN, and during an ASEAN summit meeting in May, the country called for resolving tensions in the South China Sea in accordance with international law, stressing that countries should avoid conduct that could escalate the situation. For more, we are now joined on the line by Timo Kibimaki, Professor of International Relations at University of Bath. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. What do you think is the main purpose or objective behind ASEAN's upcoming joint military exercise in the South China Sea?
3: Well, I think uh, there is an intention to show to China and others that uh, ASEAN can act alone or as one unit. Uh, um, um, This is important for ASEAN countries uh, who sometimes feel that China is so big and, uh, and they are so small. Uh, I also think that uh, for the sake of good relations, it would be great if China could recognize this unity of ASEAN, and if uh, China therefore would work uh, more with ASEAN as a whole, rather than only working with uh, ASEAN countries individually. Uh, I think this is the kind of uh, image that uh, that ASEAN wants to send about uh, the exercise uh, in terms of, uh, of the nature of the exercise, uh, they have emphasized that this is not a typical military exercise uh, uh, targeting uh, or aiming at anybody. Uh, It is a a, a, a rescue exercise rather than a military exercise.
0: Yeah, but as we know, ASEAN member states have their different demands and interests. Then how do you think that's gonna impact the overall cohesion or decision-making process within the bloc?
3: ASEAN has um, things that unite uh, it, and ASEAN has things that uh, kind of pull them apart. Uh, uh, I think the common thing that uh, unites them uh, is is really the fact that uh, they are all obsessed about about, uh, economic development. Um, uh, And of course, that's common also to all of the East Asian countries. that uh, that there's uh, there's this uh, this um, feeling that uh, that uh, economic development is the most important thing, uh, uh, most important uh, kind of function of the state. Uh, at the same time, ASEAN uh, has many political differences, uh, including uh, differences related to to uh, territorial uh, issues uh, in in South China Sea. Uh, so it's not just that ASEAN countries uh, dispute uh, same territories as China, uh, but they also dispute uh, territories uh, uh, amongst themselves. So it, it is unlikely that uh, that ASEAN can really be a very strong block against uh, Chinese demands in, in the area, uh, because of the fact that uh, they have their internal uh, overlapping uh, demands uh, too.
0: Okay. And then what do you make of Indonesia's decision to move the military exercise out of the disputed waters?
3: I think uh, East Asian way of conflict avoidance uh, is based on this uh, uh, economic uh, development uh, ideal and also respect for sovereignty. Now, uh, neither of these uh, applies to Uh, territorial disputes very well, because, of course, you cannot uh, respect somebody else's uh, sovereignty in areas that you feel that uh, you own yourself. Uh, Also, uh, um, you cannot emphasize uh, economic development in areas where 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 you actually have uh, uh, overlapping claims to to energy resources, but what we see here easily uh, or quick uh, quite clearly uh, is that uh, there is an East Asian way of avoiding uh, uh, conflicts by 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 self restraint. So. Uh, Indonesia wanted to wanted not to provoke uh, uh, China, uh, so so self restraint still applies to ASEAN action. Uh, Indonesia does not want to provoke China; it it, it wants to have good relations with China.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, what do you make of Cambodia's hesitance in joining the exercise?
3: I think Can- Cambodia has often been seen as the country that is most sensitive towards Chinese concerns. Uh, This is not the first time that that, that Cambodia uh, um, is hesitant to do something that uh, they feel uh, could provoke uh, China. Uh, I think it's, I mean, to some extent, often Cambodia is is oversensitive. Uh, I think uh, it would uh, be important for China also not to overemphasize this too much. uh,
0: well, what challenges do ASEAN countries face in navigating the escalating rivalry between China and the US?
3: I think, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a very uh, big challenge. Um, um, ASEAN cannot afford to choose sides uh, between China and, uh, and, uh, and the United States. Uh, ASEAN wants to be uh, in good terms with both, and it needs to be in good terms with both. And uh, and uh, getting uh, uh, kind of entangled uh, in this dispute uh, or or kind of antagonism between China and, and the United States is the worst thing uh, uh, that could happen to ASEAN. Uh, and uh, I think ASEAN has largely, in most most countries, uh, certainly Indonesia has managed to to avoid this. Uh, uh, I, 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 I heard. Uh, I mean, a, a, a very senior diplomat, Indonesian diplomat, once told me, uh, not not long ago, uh, he told me that uh, he 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 has advised his U.S. colleagues uh, by saying that uh, do not force us mm-hmm. to choose between China and 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 and, and the United States. Uh, uh, if you do we might very well choose china and not uh, not the united states and and i think uh, this is something that uh, uh, that also us uh, needs to keep in mind uh, asean cannot afford choosing sides between the two and uh, and, and therefore they should not be forced to
0: yeah, but as we know, the US has been expanding its military presence and engagements in the region as part of its Indo-Pacific strategy. So I'm wondering how that's being achieved, uh, received by ASEAN countries and, and what impact does it have on, on the region?
3: Well I think uh, I'll I'll start with the, the, this, this thing about uh, the usefulness of, of the concept that you mentioned uh, in Pacific, mm-hmm. which is an American concept of yeah. course. Uh, I don't think it makes any sense uh, because it gives an impression that there was a region that uh, reached from India to the coasts of Pacific Ocean. Uh, in reality, East Asia is... Acts in a similar manner in security affairs. It respects sovereignty, it focuses on economic development based on human. I mean, its human security strategy is based on economic development and it's anti hegemonic in the sense that it does not want to impose its own solutions to others. Uh, East Asia is also peaceful, mm-hmm. whereas we cannot say almost any of these. Uh, about uh, South Asia. So, so th- that's the, s- the starting point. But I think uh, for ASEAN, it is very problematic uh, if it needs to choose uh, between the two important great powers, the U.S. and, uh, and China. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. military involvement uh, should yeah, not Unfortunately,
0: force. we have to leave it here. Thank you, Timo, Timo Kivimaki, Professor of International Relations at University of Bath. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to World Today, I'm Zhao Ying. China's Ministry of Industry and Information Technology has released a work plan on the development of industrial internet. The plan aims to promote the integration, innovation, and development of 5G plus industrial internet and improve its development management platform. In terms of infrastructure, it will be able to facilitate no less than 3,000 enterprises in building 5G factories. The plan also aims to promote high-quality development of external networks of China Telecom, China Mobile, and China Unicom to connect enterprises and cloud platform resources, servicing over 3,000 enterprises. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkung Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Dr. Yao, thanks for joining us. Hi. So can you explain more on this concept of 5G plus industrial Internet?
5: 5G and industrial internet is, um, is the new uh, developing phenomenon for the industrialization 4.0, reflecting the artificial intelligence and cloud computing and big data and how these uh, digital uh, you know, elements apply to the manufacturing system. So uh, industrial internet is to uh, make sure that industrial activity is connected Uh, with the internet services. Basically, the purpose is to make the industrial production more automatic, more artificial intelligence-driven, more uh, data-driven. And the 5G. The 5G is basically the infrastructure to connect uh, and transmit all this data and information between point A and point B. And, you know, normally consumer and, and customers, they know that, the, you know, mobile payment and other things, it is connected with 5G. But in the manufacturing sector, uh, you know, the whole production process can also be connected by 5G. Because uh, uh, factories from factories, there are lots of data information that need to be uh, transmitted uh, precisely. And the people who are monitoring or control the industrial uh, process, they they can you know stick in the office and monitor uh, the process of the production in the factory level. So this kind of uh, you know technology development 5G plus industrial internet is the combination of uh, communication uh, internet services and, and manufacturing, particularly in the uh, in the industrial sector, uh, it created as a, a global network, and within the country, it could be the country-wide network to make it highly efficient and cost efficient. So,
4: okay.
5: Uh, yeah. Ultimately, the the production output would be uh, the cost would be reduced, and the delivery would be more timing and cost and cost uh, effective.
0: I see, but are there any potential challenges that may arise in implementing such a large-scale plan?
5: Yeah, they they, they are there are quite a lot of challenges. First of all, uh, the five G plus industrial internet, it would in, require a lot of downward, uh, you know, investment. So there's a cost-benefit issue. Although the purpose is to increase uh, industrial efficiency and increase the, uh, you know. The, the diversification of the industrial process but it also requires a lot of investment into the infrastructure and the second uh, challenge is, is cooperation and collaboration uh, between uh, you know market holders uh, for example like the uh, internet providers uh, the uh, telecommunication providers and also uh, the uh, manufacturer at located at different locations. How they share the cost, how they you know connect the the, the network to make sure that the, the at the aggregate level the cost is purely effective, and it can also be uh, you know fairly uh, distributed uh, between the stakeholders in the system. And the third challenge is some sort of uh, standards. Uh, because it requires a universal standard system to make sure that the internet, the 5G uh, factories and also the connections, they got to be smooth in every corner of the country, whether it is in Beijing or in Shanghai or in a fairly remote region elsewhere.
0: Yeah, and, and what implications does the integration of the uh, industrial internet and 5G technology have for the future of employment and workforce development in China?
5: Well, uh, on the one hand, it may replace some traditional workers. For example, nowadays, we can see the automation and also digital uh, applications, artificial. They are displacing quite a lot of uh, physical labor in the factory floor. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, this uh, increased production activity, they will create some new opportunity for uh, new employment. For example, like industrial services, like computing Computing, software, engineering, and also, uh, a, a, you know, uh, product services when they glitch the customer's hand. So they, they would be a significant uh, change, uh, if not transformation of the market system, including the employment, which are connected to uh, the industrial area that may be affected by the 5G plus the industrial internet.
0: Yeah, and education would be very important in this process, I guess.
5: Yes. I mean, human capital, capital development, education on job training, uh, you know, watching by doing and so. So all this uh, will require a lot of uh, skills that uh, workers have to learn, whether they, they you know, they, they learned it or not before, but there will be a great opportunity for training and people have to be trained as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So how does this uh, plan to develop 5G plus industrial internet align with China's broader industrial and technological goals?
5: Yeah, China has entered a new era, uh, you know, transforming from a, a medium and low-level manufacturing to a high-end uh, manufacturing to change the competitive advantage in the international market. So by adopting the 5G industrial technology Allow China to actually to uh, you, you know to uh, catch up with the most advanced economy in the world, and in some areas, especially the artificial intelligence, internet of things, uh, China is actually become a, a front runner, uh, you know, compared to other countries, uh, due to the huge market scales, uh, due to the, the huge territory uh, scale. So. And also the accumulation of human capital to a great extent, the technology development now, research and development. So China have lots of advantages, but the question is how to change this advantage into the competitiveness at the international level. And this is why the country is very, um, you know, active in promoting this, uh, you know, 5G technology plus the industrial internet.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, talking about global competitiveness, how does China's approach to develop its um, industrial Internet and also 5G infrastructure compare to that of other countries?
5: Well, I think China, as I mentioned, is already a a front runner fortunately. Uh, And other countries like the United States, of course, in in a smaller country like Japan, uh, South Korea and the European Union member states, they are also uh, fairly advanced and they have their own advantage. But China, uh, as a late-comer of industrialization, uh, China has been rightly doing the things that is cutting edge, uh, particularly the 5G with China uh, have more patents than many other countries in the world. And and China also, the mobile payment system, uh, the industrial uh, linkage uh, by the internet have been fairly active and, and promoted by the national uh, telecommunication company china mobile uh, china uh, you, you know the, you know the telegram uh, the company and also the, the china internet company they are huge companies and they have a huge potential for working together to make China really competitive uh, even with the United States and other most advanced countries in the world.
0: Thank you, Dr. Yao Shu Jie, Kung Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. British Defense Minister Ben Wallace has said he did not expect to succeed Jens Stoltenberg as NATO Secretary-General. In an interview with The Economist magazine, Wallace also noted the United States wants Stoltenberg to stay. Yet U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said earlier this week that his country was not promoting any particular candidate. Stoltenberg is due to step down in September after nine years as NATO Secretary-General. But the military alliance has been struggling to decide on a replacement ahead of a mid-July summit. For more, my colleague Liu Kun spoke with Vasily Kashin, Senior Research Fellow of Higher School of Economics at Moscow, Russia.
6: In your opinion, what qualities uh, would be needed to become NATO chief? NATO chief
7: uh, needs to represent the balance Uh, Of interests between the main uh, alliance members and uh, of course uh, he has to be acceptable to the United States uh, as the leading NATO country but he uh, must also be acceptable for uh, the key European players and uh, that usually means that uh, NATO Secretary General is not supposed to be um not very, uh, not supposed to be too active or too outspoken. It, it, it should be a very careful politician, uh carefully choosing his wo- wo- words. Uh this is not something which could be attributed to Ben Wallace.
4: Mm.
6: <laughs> well then um Professor let's be honest. Um which country or which countries will have the ultimate say uh you know on who the next NATO chief is?
7: Of course, the ultimate say uh, will belong to the United States, but uh, positions of other major uh, NATO countries like France and Germany will also be very important. And uh, we know that, uh, for example, France was uh, uh, having uh, significant doubts about uh, Ben Wallace. Uh, at this position, and uh, that probably played a role uh, in uh, what happened.
6: Mm. Well, Professor, one of the main challenges for NATO chief is how to mitigate the differences uh, or narrow down the differences between, uh, among NATO countries, for example, differences on issues between the US and uh, EU countries, particularly France. So, uh, Professor, Tell us, why do such differences or such gaps exist in the first place?
7: The key issue is like NATO is currently in, in the middle of big transformation. It's not just about uh, fighting proxy war against Russia. It's also about changing global role of the NATO. Uh, The United States are trying to push NATO towards globalization and greater presence in Asia-Pacific. And uh, uh, we saw that NATO's ties with countries like Japan and South Korea grew significantly. Mm. And uh, that, uh, that is uh, also an area of concern because some countries uh, in Europe are still uh, arguing for independent European policy in Asia, especially towards China.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: Of course, uh, there are different views on uh, the future and possible outcomes of the uh, of the military conflict in Ukraine. Outwardly, they all try to project the image of unity, but uh, such unity doesn't exist in reality. Uh, The ongoing war is a very significant economic burden for um, for all of the NATO countries, but uh, the burden is distributed unevenly, and Mm -hmm. uh, European economies are suffering much more from this war than, for example, United States. United States are having some benefits from it. Mm. Uh, All all of that is creating significant internal disputes and uh, what they cannot afford now is to um, uh, let these disputes become uh, open and visible to the outside world. Mm. So Mm. they need to choose the next uh, secretary very carefully.
6: Mm. Well, then reports are saying that uh, the U.S. is considering to have a uh, Stoltenberg staying on. How do you view that possibility?
7: Professor? I believe it's quite possible because mm. uh, uh, at, at, at least that will uh, uh, enable them to maintain the current level of cooperation. And uh, Stol- Stoltenberg has Proven to be a very comfortable uh, candidate for the United States, so uh, he could be steered by them either way and uh, used to uh, um, used to achieve American goals. uh, Mm -hmm. For example, in the Ukrainian conflict, and these goals might change in coming months because. The situation on the ground is changing. Ukrainian counteroffensive is failing, mm. and uh, who knows what will happen mm. towards the end of the year,
6: Professor. So, uh, recently speaking alongside German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Berlin, Stoltenberg said uh, the alliance's coming upcoming summit in mid July will not result in a formal invitation for Ukraine to become a member. How do you think that will influence the war on the ground?
7: It might contribute to the demoralization of the Ukrainian troops, of course, mm. uh, because basically, um, what the, uh, the 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 big idea behind all of the Ukrainian war efforts is that after long uh, long and terrible suffering, one day they will become members of both EU and NATO. Reality is that uh, these things are just not going to happen Mm. ever, Mm. or at least will not happen in the foreseeable future.
4: Mm. Uh,
7: There are reasons to suspect that uh, the United States and some of their allies are not ready to provide Ukraine with uh uh in, in, in uh, chapter five in security guarantees they're just n- not ready to risk it, to risk uh a, a full-scale nuclear war against Russia so now we see various talks about Israeli model about uh just providing some assistance which is just not the same mm. and EU accession is uh equally unlikely because of the economic devastation and high level of corruption in the Ukraine.
4: Mm.
0: There's Vasily Kashin, Senior Research Fellow at Higher School of Economics in Moscow, Russia, speaking with my colleague Liu Quinn. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Australia has given Twitter 28 days to clean up toxicity and hate on its platform or face potential fines. Twitter has become Australia's most complained about the platform since Elon Musk took control of it last year. Twitter has far fewer users in Australia than TikTok, Facebook, or Instagram, but the country's E-Safety Commissioner Julie Emin Grant said the platform was now responsible for one-third of online hate complaints. Elon Musk has fired more than 80% of Twitter's global workforce, including many of the content moderators responsible for stemming out abuse. For more, we are now joined on the line by Chen Xi, Assistant to Director of Australian Studies Centre at East China Normal University. Chen Xi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Why has Twitter become Australia's most complained-about platform since Elon Musk took control of it? Uh,
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, Australia adopts Nazi culturalism as its kind of like national policy. But there was extremist sentiment of racism towards the marginalized communities, such as Asians and the Indigenous people in history. So even today, such racism mindset persists still in Australia and poses great threats to Australia's cultural diversity, as well as its political and social, as well as like cultural setting of multicultural, uh, multiculturalism. So since Mark took control of this platform last year, he has successively slashed more than 80% of the global workforce, including those content moderators who would be responsible for stamping out the news and then declared a broad amnesty, allowing tens of thousands of suspended or banned accounts to rejoin this platform. So for Australia, although a racist mindset has been, we can say, generally hosted with multiculturalism in stores as its national policy, But sentiments of uh, racism have been lurking as subconscious sentiments rest to be stirred up to re-emerge to to strengthen Australia's cultural diversity in the future.
0: Mm -hmm. Given Twitter's significant influence and reach as a social media platform, what are the potential societal consequences consequences of these hate speech on its platform, particularly in the case of Australia?
1: Yeah, so uh, the hate speech, we say, it won't appear only on social media platforms, and its rich would extends quite far in line. So in the case of Australia, the toxicity around race resides quite deep within the country. In fact, not only media, but also like sports, arts, business, uh, politics, etc. So in recent years, Australia has actually adopted measures to tackle with the problem. For example, things June last year, Victoria has become the first Australian state or territory to ban the public display of the Nazi symbol in recognition of its role in inciting anti-Semitism and hate. And also for this year, it's quite important for Australia because um, Canberra will have its uh, referendum by the end of like this year to decide if the Indigenous population could get a voice to parliament in national policymaking. So, while the post show majority was back for this vote, but the support is slipping as the debate becomes increasingly acrimonious, especially on social media platforms. So we can say, while Australia's Parliament has already passed this legislation, the referendum will finally decide whether the Constitution would be altered or not. And the platforms, just like Twitter, will be very likely to leave quite a greater impact on this historic constitutional change for this whole
0: country in the course of its history. Um, yeah. Considering the influence of, of these high-profile individuals like Elon Musk on Twitter, how do you think platforms and owners and leaders can be held accountable for their impact and their decisions um, will have on content moderation and also tackling online hate? Yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: so for the uh, like uh, social media platforms, as well as the uh, leaders, they should be accountable for this kind of uh, impact. But at the same time, I think we should clearly see from Australia's case that the West has quite adopted a double standard towards the control over public opinion. So, for example, for uh, Musk to declare amnesty on Twitter, Australia has lashed out and put forward opinions, whether out of its own political interests or moral judgments. But at the same time, we can say it also points fingers at other countries, including China. So the question Australia should think about is, when you are pointing your finger at someone, why don't you think they will just point back at you? So One of the very typical examples for Australia is its indigenous broadcaster, Stan Grant. So he has repeatedly denounced other countries' control of public opinion before. But this time, when he himself was affected, He felt that the ABC, where we say Australian Broadcasting Corporation, did not give him enough support. And larger complaints with uh, Twitter about the kind of so-called relentless racial field. So he had kind of like co while using this kind of a platform. So we say from this that the public opinion is a kind of uh, double-edged sword. So, on the one hand, the environment of the public opinion, including the internet itself, is very important for the transmission of information and also the free speech. But at the same time, it can also be instrumented and become a kind of a political tool. So, Mm -hmm. we must approach, we can say, like, kind of like, um, open up the kind of the, the, the political opinion, but it also makes these platforms more susceptible to manipulation in the future. Mm -hmm.
0: Then what role do you think governments should play in regulating social media platforms to effectively address online hate? Or do you feel that perhaps these companies should have their own guidelines? They should be responsible for this.
1: Uh, yeah, not only, uh, like the, the, the companies, but governments definitely should play a very, uh, important role in regulating this kind of, uh, the, the, the social media platform. And also at the same time, the international corporations should be adopted and seek. To like have a um, kind of the efforts together to create a quite harmonious and uh, like the, the, the safe environment. So the, the kind of like the, the the internet violence we're we're here say is a kind of problem facing the whole society. So all parties, including those we have just mentioned, the social media platforms, where the governments and also like legal departments use this as well, they should all work together to to strengthen the kind of supervision and publicity. We in this way we can like improve the internet literacy and jointly create a civilized and also harmonious and safe online environment. Um, By saying this, we know that in 2020, China launched a global initiative on data security, which emphasized that all parties should step up dialogue and cooperation on the basis of mutual respect and join hands to forge a community with a shared future in cyberspace featuring peace, security, openness, cooperation and order. So China's control of the public opinion and the Internet could be regarded as a success story. So on the one hand, it has realized the dissemination of information. And on the other hand, it has effectively controlled hate speech um, on the social media platform. So in China, we can say also the hate speech like on international platforms such as Weibo and WeChat. But it will soon be effectively
0: controlled and managed. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Chen Xi, Assistant to Director of Australian Studies Centre at East China Normal University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.